It's the same way with passion in any area of life. You have to act on it. And this is why I love the text here in Ecclesiastes 9 and 7. Seize life. Boy, I saw what I wanted and I grabbed it. Amen. And I'm glad I did. And, and Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, that our high priest has lived here where we live. And he is the only one who's ever done so and faced what people face in life and did so in perfection without ever succumbing to temptation or a flaw or to, to sin. And the reason that is stated that way is not to discourage us and beat us up, but rather to encourage us because that high priest is now gone into the heavens where he waits, moved with the feeling of our infirmity, our weakness. He can be touched. He can be moved to act by our circumstance. We can actually cause God to get involved. And though, so what we should do is come boldly into the throne of grace that we, mercy, that we may find grace to help in, in time of need. Throne of grace, and we may find grace and mercy both, actually, uh, to uh, help us through that circumstance. Because you need mercy since we're not the ones that are perfect, and he is. Amen. And having said that, over the last number of weeks, I've taught about different people who did act on passion and uh, did go the extra mile, as it were, because they had passion. Passion will make you go further than others will go. That gets God's attention. Abraham went further than anybody else would go by offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Did it work? Did his passion touch God? You better know it. Amen. And because of that, there are now 12 tribes in Israel, and from one of them came our Savior. The promises of Genesis 12 and 13 to Abraham were fulfilled because he acted with extraordinary passion and moved our high priest. Similarly, you read other places in the scripture that I've talked about. Uh, Rizpah moved the king with extraordinary uh, uh, intercession and caused the king to act in behalf of her circumstance. Paul and Silas, they moved the Lord with extraordinary worship, offered in the middle of their pain, having been beaten and whipped in the bottom of a dungeon in the jail in Philippi, and God sent an earthquake. Just numbers of places, and now we're on Nehemiah. Who would have ever thought that the story of Nehemiah would be so powerful? The book of Nehemiah, as I've already shared with you, mentioned it last week, is an extraordinary book in that, in this regard, you might not even be aware of it, but there are actually leadership teaching resources out there that use Nehemiah as a leadership model that are not even Christian or godly. They're secular. It's just the leadership principles of this book are so compelling that they work in the church or out of it. And I, I think about leadership. Why well, talk about leadership in a Sunday morning service, I actually, when the Lord began to deal with me about this as one of those ways that he can be moved, I thought, but Lord, that's Sunday morning. Not everybody there is going to want to hear leadership teaching, and uh, they don't perceive themselves as leaders. And the quick response I got back in my spirit was, all of us are leaders. And I remembered, I tell you what, I remembered meeting my wife's 
uh, mother and father, and then after getting married into the family, getting to know them well. And one day my dad, my, my wife's dad, my, my father-in-law, dad-in-law, we had come in from preaching revivals. We went into ministry, and we came home to rest for a few days, and, and we were there at their place, and you'll love this. They lived at 218 East Brimstone Street in Sulphur. Amen. And I was a hellfire and breathing, you know, evangelist. And, and I used their address as my address. And, boy, I had some fun with that. Somebody one time said, no wonder you can preach like that, you know. And, you know hell, you live there, man. That's your address. You know? We were sitting there one day, and my father-in-law said, I'm the head of this family. And he was making a point about something. And my little old sweet mother-in-law, and she's the sweetest lady you'll ever want to meet, she just looked up and smiled and said, yes, but I'm the neck that moves the head. <laughs> We're all leaders at one point or other. Yes, we are. And uh, you're either leading a family or you're leading the one that is leading the family. <laughs> or you're leading somebody. You know what I'm talking about? You're a leader. And so this, this text in scripture of Scripture in Nehemiah is compelling. Nehemiah 4 and 6. So we built the wall. Say that with me. So we built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. And the people, or for the people, had a mind to work. The wall was completely now surrounding the city, all of the gaps and spaces where one had started working here and another here, the empty places had been joined together, but the wall was not yet at a sufficient height to be able to be a true means or measure of defense for the city. It was only half built. And that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, the people had been inspired by, leader, by the leadership uh, Example and vision and leadership principles of Nehemiah. And they had from, as it were, being a people who were a nobody. Uh, people without a name. Formers. Those who were allowed to survive by the Babylonian army, as I mentioned before, that had killed everybody with any education or leadership potential. These little nobodies were now building a wall that would defend their city and rebuilding the city. Father, in the name of Jesus, please speak to us today. Help us that we might be able to better lead those who follow us. Let your word be illuminated. Let your truth be electrified. And let it be compelling to us in such a way that it actually pushes out the old thinking that is not in alignment with your word and pulls into us and, as it were, concretizes, sets in our mind forever the principles of truth that are foundational in Scripture. May we believe that. May we accept that. May we never question your word but come to live and base our lives upon it. In Jesus' name I ask, and everybody said amen. The extraordinary key of leadership. So we've talked about Nehemiah. And I love this about the Bible. I, I still marvel at this book of Nehemiah when I read it. Because here's a guy that, as I've pointed out several times, 
It was just the wine taster, which is a fancy name for the guy who would sip from the king's cup first in case it was poison. And if he lived, then the king would drink the wine. Here's the guy that was the king's human guinea pig to test to see if he had been poisoned. Obviously, someone with not a great amount of skill. I mean, why go get you a doctor's degree if you're going to just drink the king's wine and may fall over dead someday, right? Don't need a PhD. You don't even need a master's degree for that. All you have to have is a heart that's beating right now and will stop if wine is in the cup. That's all, all you need for that. God takes this man, elevates him, and uses him to become an extraordinary leader. And when I read these stories in the Bible like this, I'm reminded of something that I've often said here. The Bible is more than just about stories. True, the stories of the Bible contain the history of God's relationship with mankind. And the stories themselves are factual and true. There's a current um, vogue, in vogue kind of way of thinking that the Bible is not really, you know, accurate in the meticulous detail of the stories that it writes. Its, it's things are okay, but revisionist history would make us believe that some of its stories are not actually the truth. For example, ha, nobody would really believe Jonah was swallowed by the whale or that Israel crossed the Red Sea because God parted it, right? Wrong. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. Amen. It says it, that's the way it is. And to discount that means you're discounting the fact that God is supernatural. It can make stuff happen that defy the normal laws of physics. The God I serve is supernatural. Amen. And that's why I want to connect to him. I'm going to run out of my resources someday, whether it's money or medicine or medical, uh, you know, uh, tests or doctors or attorneys or friends or advice or counselors or whatever. Someday I'm going to need help that's greater than that because once I deplete that, if I don't have him to turn to, where am I going to go? Amen. And thank God we as believers have resources that those who don't know God do not have access to. And so I look at the stories and I realize, wait a minute, these stories, as good as they are, are compelling. And I need to pay attention when I study the Bible. I need to pay attention when I go to church and hear the scripture taught. You know why? Because these stories don't just contain facts. The principles they contain are the very principles upon which life is based. But more than that, the principles contain laws. Laws are irrevocable. And once you learn the laws that cause the functioning and the operation of this universe, you can align yourself with those laws and those laws will fundamentally change your future and your life from that point on. And for example, if I hold something in my hand and drop it, the law of gravity is going to say that, that it's going to hit the carpet on this platform that I'm standing on. And there are spiritual laws as well that when you align yourself with those, those laws come to play an important role in developing your future. So the stories contain principles, but the principles contain laws. Well, where it really becomes powerful is when you realize the laws actually become keys. They contain the keys to unlocking the next level of your life. So properly embrace the laws that were in the principles, that were in the stories, 
now open up an entire new dimension of life to you. You don't have to stay where you are for the rest of your life. If there is a single message that I believe the Bible teaches, is, is that it is this, that God is wanting to elevate humanity. Amen. I'm preaching right now. I guess this is the Garden of Eden I'm, I'm preaching in. <laughs> Vacation Bible school starts this week. And do you know that really is what God wants to do? Return us to the state that man was in before he fell because of sin in the Garden of Eden. God wants to lift you up. And what is fundamental to my ministry and will occur in every message I preach, every theme that we, we embrace for the year, whether it's declarations that will change your life or whether it's elevating your life or whatever it may be, foundational to that will be this theme that God wants to elevate you back to the place the enemy stole from you. And so when somebody offers me a key that can unlock the next dimension, hey, I I'm listening, amen. So you need to listen when you come to the house of God. And speaking of listening, did you hear about Boudreaux? I got a Boudreaux joke for y'all. Boudreaux done up and died and went to heaven. And he's standing at the pearly gates. And St. Peter greets him and said, welcome to heaven, Boudreaux. And Boudreaux scratched his head and looked around and said, my, okay, Cher. He said, good to be here. And so uh, St. Peter said, well, Boudreaux, you know, there's one question you got to answer before you get into heaven. And Boudreaux said, what'd that be, Cher? And he said, you got to tell me God's first name. And Boudreaux said, oh, Shad, that's easy. God's first name done be Howard. And St. Peter started laughing. And he said, how did you get God's first name to be Howard? And Boudreaux said, Shad. He said, it's in the Lord's prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, Howard be thy name. <laughs> Amen. Tell somebody, pay attention. Amen. So thus far, we've covered six of the leadership principles of Nehemiah. Number one, he made himself available. Number two, he saw opportunity where others saw problems. Number three, he had vision and inspired others to follow it. Number four, he built and motivated a team. Number five, he stayed focused and kept the main thing the main thing. And number six, he refused to allow problems to discourage him. I might say the inevitable problems that will always occur. The Bible is awesome. Now let's look at some of the next principles of leadership that contain, as it were, the laws that actually hold keys to your future. I'm only going to get through one today, but notice the scripture says the wall was halfway built. It completely encircled the city, but it was only up so high. One of the things that Nehemiah is about to face now is common in any endeavor. The challenges that you face when you first begin are not the challenges that you will face halfway through your journey. You're going to have to make some mid-course corrections halfway through because challenges are going to develop that you had no ability to foresee. You don't stop and throw up your hands and quit at that point and say, I'm not going any further, you adjust and make mid-course corrections, mid-course adjustments 
to adapt to the new problems that are now on the horizon. The people were excited. They were inspired. But if Nehemiah had not made mid-course corrections in his leadership ability, they would have gotten halfway through the task and they would have stopped. And so the wall was not completed. There are always challenges that occur midway through a project that are quite different from those that you face when the project first begins. They're going to require a fresh assessment and a new strategy and often necessitate that you make some adjustments. For example, you may say early on, I'm going to be the head of this company and something happened and you're not going to be the head of that company. But in the meanwhile, you're developing leadership skills in preparation for that but that position doesn't open. So another one does, and you end up being the head of something else. Or I'm, gonna, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'm going to build a house over here. And by the time you get ready to go and build, there's no land left, property left, and you have to end up building over here. The point is you don't stop. Throw up your hands and wail in despair and say, I've gone as far as I can go. My dream is finished. No, you tweak your dream. You understand, you tweak your dream, not twerk your dream, you tweak your dream. Just want to make sure you're listening to me. I don't know where that came from, just tweak your dream, amen, amen. I think about leading the church here, for example, I've had to learn that through the years. We've just had some exciting news this very week that I'll share with you, I, I've Look back over our building program. We launched our building program. The economy of the nation was doing great. And do you know we launched that program? Everybody was excited. And I mean, boom, just like that. The economy took a nosedive. It had started when we launched the program, but no one had a crystal ball they could gaze into that could see how deep that valley was and how severe the rut would be that we would get into. And for the last seven or eight years, it's been a tough, tough day for the United States of America. In fact, we were so excited. We received over $7 million in pledge uh, commitments, but only half of that came in. A little over $3 million came in. We were extraordinarily grateful for everything that people pledged, the, in, the purity of their desire. We were also equally grateful for what came in. But the truth was we had to make a mid-course correction. Why? Because the economy fell apart. People lost jobs. Houses were foreclosed on. Cars repossessed. And people who didn't lose houses got upside down in their mortgages and were struggling. And I can't even tell you how many people came to me saying, Pastor, I'm so sorry. I made that commitment. I fully intended to keep it. And if things get better on, I will. And I want to do what I can. But this is what's happened. And do you know, I even took an extra six months and had pain my commitment simply because of the fact that I too was affected in some ways that I had not anticipated. But here's what we did. The leadership of the church looked at the situation and said, we better not go ahead and build right now. Instead, we better weigh this thing out and think it through. And I'm glad we did, and I think you will be when you realize that many churches... <clears throat> that just bulldoggedly pushed through it, 
<coughs> excuse me, and built in, in spite of all of the indicators. Do you know that many of those lost those churches? Churches were foreclosed on all across the nation. I'm serious. Not only that, pastors resigned. Churches shut down, literally shut down by the hundreds of thousands. And some had to consolidate where two congregations would join together. Not just that, but very large prominent ministries literally lay, had to lay off more than half their staff. I think of T.D. Jakes. 70% of his staff had to be laid off as prominent and as well-known, thank you, sir, as that ministry is. He had to, to lay off more than half his staff, 70% of them, because of the situation I'm describing. Had we bulldoggedly gone forward at that moment and not listened to the voice of the Lord? Oh, we got halfway through the pledge commitment, but we had to reassess. Had we not, as I started to say, God knows the tragedy that would have occurred here and so we just used the funds you gave just the way that you wanted us to use them that would have been a part of the building program, paid off the, all the architectural fees, land and everything, taxes each year. And we had a lot of money we owed on the land and got it down to just the other day. It was this past week. In fact, 709000 is all we owed on 65, right at 65 acres over there. And so we just, we've been waiting on, on God to, to help us out. And you know, actually, CT was one of the least affected and Houston was one of the least affected areas in the nation. And you know what I think? I think because we did follow God, God honored us. That's what I think. I think we stepped out in faith and we were listening to the voice. And when the voice said, stop right here for a little while, we had sense enough to stop. And I think that pleased God. And we were like Israel and Goshen. Everybody else is struggling and we're still doing fine. Thank you very much. Amen. Haven't had to lay anybody off. Just high five somebody and say, we're still here. Would you do that? We're still here. We were like King David in 2 Samuel. Listen, 5 and 19. When he asked the Lord if he should attack the Philistines, the Lord said, yes. Go up against them, and he would deliver them into David's hands. So David attacked, and you know what? Just like God said, the Philistines were defeated, only they were not annihilated. And that means that some of them escaped and came to fight again a little bit later. And David asked, do I keep on fighting? Look at this in 2 Samuel 5, 23 through 24. Four verses after God said, yes, go attack David asked, shall I attack again? And the Lord said, nope, stop right here and just wait until you, you hear another word from me. And he said, in fact, go around the other side and I want you to wait over there. By, you see that stand of mulberry trees? Go wait over there until you hear the wind blowing in the mulberry trees. And when you hear the wind, that's my signal to you to attack. Now, you know what the wind was? The wind was the rushing of angels and their armies through those mulberry trees. What God was saying is don't attack till my army shows up. It's not your battle, it's my battle. I'm preaching right now, amen. Oh, yes, and I love the way God does that. You don't wanna get out in front of God, but you don't wanna get behind God either. 
And so David waited and the wind started blowing and he attacked. And you know what the Bible says? He completely routed the enemy and defeated the enemy decisively. And it's that way here. We, we attacked, we launched our program, then God said, wait, and we waited, and now I got some news for you. We're hearing the wind in the mulberry trees. The wind is blowing. Tell somebody the wind is blowing again. Angels' armies are showing up. God's getting ready to do something. Amen. You're wondering why I'm preaching this. Do you know that that Friday, two days ago, something wonderful happened. I'll just, I, I can't, I, I gotta share it. I mean, I was advised to wait until next week, but I, y'all forgive me, this is on my head. I mean, I mean, that property just to the east of us where that ugly radio tower is at, we bought that some years ago, never asked you for a penny. I bought uh, 12 acres, I think it was, and, and bought it for $125,000. Is that right? Pa uh, Brother Tony, Pastor Tony. Yeah, we did. And do you know what? Friday we closed. We sold it for $500,000. Amen. I hear the wind. Now, after... You know, after title fees and, and after realtor's fees, we clear like 489000 But you know, some of that money that we didn't use and we used every penny the way we have told you. We've kept open books on everything you gave. You know what we did? We still had some of it left over. And so with only 709000 we took the rest. What was that? Uh, uh, 20, what, somebody do the math. 23000 or 223000 or something like that. Uh, added up real fast for me, those of you that are fast with numbers. 709,000, and we just got 489, and, and we're going to add another couple hundred thousand with it and pay off the land on the belt. <laughs> Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. And that's without having to ask for a penny from anybody. Oh, God is good. God is good. And you know what's good about that? We made over 400% on that property next door with nothing but an ugly radio tower standing on top of it. Tell somebody, I hear the wind blowing again. And, you know, I was advised, I said, now I realize I'm, I'm, I'm taking this decision to tell you today because I, well, like that, com, uh, that uh, comedian said, I had the right to remain silent, but I didn't have the ability, you know, and so I had the right to wait till next week, but I couldn't keep quiet because, you know, they signed and closed Friday, just pray there's no rubber in that check, and, and you know what, I, you know what I'm, I'm assuming, there's none. But we're going to get all of that cleared away. We're on the march around here, and God's doing some things. Tell somebody mid-course corrections. Would you do that? You'll hear some more in just a little bit about what we're going to do next, but I had to share that with you. And when you look at Nehemiah, one of the things he had to make an adjustment for, leadership principle number seven, is he did not give in to his insecurities. Look at Nehemiah 4 and 3. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Insecurities. 
We grow up in a world that is flawed. A fallen world ruled by a fallen Lord, and we're a fallen race. That's pretty much the way the circumstance exists. And in this world, one of the problems that happens if you live here for very long is you are going to get wounded in the course of your life. Somebody's going to talk bad about you. Somebody's going to question your motives. Somebody's going to have something ugly to say. You can't please everybody all the time. And you need to know what the enemy was doing with Nehemiah because he will try to do that with you. Notice what he said. Whatever they build, they. Uh, the inference is if anybody else builds it, it'd be okay. But you, <laughs> you, you, you. <laughs> come on, get serious. What do you know about building a wall? Yo, you were, with the, were, you were the expendable cup bearer for the king to see if he had poison in his wine. And these, these Jews, well, they were just formers. None of them are educated and have leadership ability. Whatever they build is going to surely fall down if something as dainty and as delicate and as small as a fox tries to cross it. What Tobiah did was question his inner ability. This wasn't just about what your capabilities are. It's about who you are as a person. Amen. You see, by now, they've learned how to put a few stones together. They've learned how to mix mortar. They didn't know when they first got started, but now they've got the wall coming together. Not only must you make a mid-course correction, you need to realize the reason that you're doing it is because the enemy has already made one. The enemy realized the old strategy isn't working. So the good news is when something new gets pulled out of the box, a new tool that the enemy's trying to use against you, a new battle, you really ought to shout. You know why? It means he's realizing the old strategy wasn't doing the job. It means that you're marching forward. Somebody say, thank God I'm still pushing on. Amen. What is at heart of this statement is the same strategy the enemy has always used ever since Eden. Interesting that today I would be preaching in the middle of the Garden of Eden. Amen. Only thing I don't see is the snake, the serpent. I've even got some Louisiana alligators over here. Amen. Make me really feel at home. But look, the issue that the enemy is about to use to try to attack the strategy that he's employing to get to Nehemiah and the people is an ages-old one. The enemy only has three tools. That's all he needs. They are so overwhelmingly powerful and so uncommonly successful that he doesn't need any more. It's kind of like having the atom bomb, a nuclear weapon. You don't need to have a pea shooter. You don't need to have a six-gun. You don't even need RPGs, baby. You got an atom bomb, that's good enough. Show me your RPG, I'll show you my nuclear weapon. That's pretty much the way it stacks up. The enemy has, through the years, developed his ability with these three weapons until he literally doesn't need any more. They are the weapons of temptation, the weapon of deception, and the weapon of accusation. Here's the way they work. Temptation says to those who give in to me, I will give you a better life than the one you already have. You're inferior 
to everybody else unless you give in to what I am offering you. Everybody else has, and they're enjoying it. You're the one missing out. Deception says this, I know something you don't know, and you are inferior to everybody else that knows it until you submit to what I have to say. Accusation says this, I'm actually better than you are. You're inferior to me because you're flawed. And my accusation points out your flaw and points out the prominent fact that you're therefore inferior. This strategy was employed in the Garden of Eden in the following manner. You read it in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, notice the question, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Question mark. Every tree of the garden? All right, is that what God said? Now watch. This is the enemy's response, or the woman's response. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the fruit, uh, fruit rather of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, "Ye shall not eat it nor touch it, lest you die." Tell somebody some things you don't even want to touch. Tell them that. Amen. <laughs> then the serpent said to the woman, "You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open." And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The three tools... Temptation, deception, accusation. Let's watch how it plays out. Only in the story, the original story in the Bible, the one that we always think comes first didn't come first. We always think temptation is the first tool the enemy uses against us. It isn't. Watch the way that it's played out. He actually uses accusation first. In this case, with the order reversed, he comes to Eve and Adam who is with her. I'll point out that, the significance of that in a moment and ask this question. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of, the, of every tree of the garden? Wait a minute. That's not anything near like what God said. God didn't say you couldn't eat of every tree. He said only two. There are millions of others that you can only leave these two alone. Already the devil is trying to accuse God of shutting man's party down. Amen. And the enemy will tell you the same thing. Everybody else is having fun. Why are you living this kind of life? Is God trying to shut you down? No. What you need to understand is you can do everything that is legal and right to have a good life. But if you're doing something that's going to end up blowing up in your face, it's better for somebody to tell you before you do it. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Amen. The enemy then goes on to say, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God and 
This is what he's telling them, knowing good from evil. Wait a minute. That is accusation. He's actually saying God's keeping something from you. That's what he's literally saying. And the enemy will tell you that same thing. Why do you think this building is not crammed to such a capacity that people are standing on the highway? The grounds are full. Oh, we've got five services here today. We've got lots of folk coming, but everybody in this city ought to be here. You know why they're not? The enemy's told, telling them that if you go, God's going to shut down your party, rain on your parade. God, serving God costs you something. It doesn't cost you anything other than the pain you would have. Oh, I'm preaching right now. By doing things that you're going to later regret. You'll be like God. This is where he pulls out the weapon now of deception. He starts with accusation and now deception. You can be like God. Wait a minute, devil. We already are. You were made in God's image and likeness. Don't ever forget that. You were created like God. I love the text in Psalms where it said that God has made man a little lower than the angels. Only in the original it didn't say angels, it said Elohim. Man is made only a little lower than Elohim. You know who Elohim is? That's Jehovah God. Do you know that you were created as a higher order of existence than even the angels were? Just a little bit lower than God. But the enemy puts you in this performance trap. Gets you on this, this, as it were, this treadmill. Trying to perform to become who you already are. Do this and you can be like God. And this is what the enemy always tells everybody. Religion is rife with it. This plus Christ and you can be saved. Uh-uh, baby. Christ plus nothing and I am saved. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. In Christ alone I take my stand. You hear what I'm saying here today? It's not any goodness on our part. The enemy's trying to tell man that if you do something, you can now measure up. And this is what is being used against Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem by Sanballat, Tobiah, and all of these others. If a fox were to run across your wall, <laughs> it would collapse in a heap of rubble and dust. <laughs> Imagine, what kind of wall do you think you're building? And he begins to make fun. And they feel the compelling need to do one of two things. And this is what always happens when your self-esteem is being questioned. One, you will become angry. That's the first response of many people. Why, what do you mean my walls? I can build a wall as good as anybody can around here and build one just as well as you, that's for sure. And, and you go to defending yourself. Look at your neighbor and say, don't try to defend yourself. Would you do that? The other thing is you spend your time stressing out on why it isn't good enough. You either get mad or you get all stressed. Oh, I wonder what's wrong with my wall. It looks pretty good to me. I, maybe if I turn this stone this way. 
or, or maybe the mortar needs a little bit more sand in it. Oh, what do you think's really good? My wall, I thought it was looking so good, and now he comes along and tells me it's, it's not, uh, not going to stand. If a fox runs across it, it's going to fall down. And the next thing you know, your eyes are off of God. The first response, get your eyes off God and on the enemy, and you want to fight. The second response, get your eyes off God and on you. In both cases, you are experiencing feelings of inadequacy. And here's what happens in psychology. When there is a self-perception of inadequacy or ugliness, it begs ornamentation. And you start looking around trying to fix what isn't even broken. Amen. I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. I need somebody in the building to say, help me, Lord. Amen. Because I'm talking where we live right now. Let somebody say something ugly to us. Every one of us have been through some rough places in life. Somebody said we'd never amount to much. Somebody criticized us. Somebody laughed at the house we lived in. The clothes we wore as little kids or the grades we made in school. Somebody said, I'm not your friend. I'm her, her friend, his friend. Somebody wounded us. A daddy somewhere in a moment of insecurity and rage and anger over his own frustration and lot in life looked at us and said, what's the matter with you? You'll never amount to anything. And wounded us. A mother is perceived as liking another child, a sibling, better than they love us. And we grow up with this self-awareness or perception of something being missing in our lives. If we were as nice looking, if we were as smart, if we had the right kind of clothes, if we could shoot hoops like the next guy or make rhymes like the other one across the street. You know what I'm saying? And we live our lives always feeling inferior and somebody comes along and in the course of our life, unwittingly pushes the button. Boom. And all of our world starts coming unraveled. And we forget how blessed we are. And we start looking to try to make everybody think we're more, we're more together than, than, than they thought we were. We're more handsome. We're more beautiful. A self-awareness of ugliness begs for correction and ornamentation. Like Bruce Jenner, I always thought he was a nice looking guy, but somewhere along the way, he got the idea he wasn't good looking and went to a plastic surgeon. I think that guy ought to still be in jail for what he did to Bruce Jenner. Amen. But you end up messing up your own life by trying to fix what isn't even out of order. I need somebody in the building to say, I'm made in the image of Almighty God. <laughs> Hallelujah to the Lamb. God loved me just the way that I was and reached down and saved me. Do you know what I'm talking right about right now is what's underneath all addiction? All addiction, whether it's pornographic addiction or drug addiction or alcoholism, it's behind religious addiction. You go to some churches and they're built on this very tool the enemy employs in his attack against Nehemiah. If a fox runs on that wall, it won't make it. It'll collapse. What they say instead is, ha, my religion is better than yours. My Need I say it? 
your mind's already there. I might as well. Don't you wish you had a church as hot as mine? Uh-huh. And we get to thinking that. And they begin to belittle us and put us on the defensive. And I want you to know this church is not built on that. We don't go around with a nose this long looking at everybody's business and trying to tell them how inferior they are. Our calling is to reach down and pick people up and help them become everything that Jesus Christ intended for them to be. Somebody in the building shout hallelujah. Amen. So he first pulls out the weapon of accusation, then the weapon of deception, and then finally temptation goes to work. It's only when a self-awareness of need has been created that temptation can actually be employed successfully. When you are made to feel your marriage is inferior. Am I talking now? Amen. Your love life is lacking. You're not making as much money. Your social life is inadequate. The house you live in is not quite as good as somebody else's or the car you drive. It's only then that temptation becomes a force that is compelling in your life. Now, let's look back at Nehemiah. How do you keep from caving in to the taunts of the enemy? What you do is look back at him and you say, listen... You can put as many foxes as you want to on this wall. In fact, you can get all the men together that had to go catch the foxes. And this wall is still going to stand because I'm doing a good job. Amen. And if you don't realize it, that's your problem and not mine. I'm wrapping it up because I got to close. People with a self-perception of inadequacy can't even pay you a compliment. Because somehow if they lift you up with a compliment, they already inside feel so low. They're lifting you even that much higher. It makes them feel worse. This is why Jesus said rejoice with them who rejoice. You can't do that until you learn who you are in God. You can't rejoice with others who are blessed while you are feeling inadequate. What is the solution? Number one, you need to just accept this fact. You're made in the image and likeness of God Almighty. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Hallelujah to the Lamb. I said hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Amen. And in people's woundedness and sense of inadequacy, they'll do all kind of things. Demand titles. But like I told you about my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, sometimes it's not even the one with a title who's really doing the job. During the years, we've had people come here that have needed titles. I'm not belittling, so please don't think I am. Call me Bishop so-and-so. I've never asked to be called bishop or anything. Call me, hey, you, I'll still answer, amen. You know why? Because there are some people who cannot call me pastor, and it doesn't matter. You can call me pastor, you can call me doc, you can call me rich, you can call me, hey, you, I'll respond to any of them because my identity is not in my title, 
My identity is in God. I feel the blessing of the Lord in this house right now. I don't need a title. He loves me. Why do I need to impress anybody? He loves me. He has accepted me. Hallelujah. Amen. I teach those that I mentor in ministry, learn how to pay compliments. Learn how to look somebody in the eye and tell them, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. If those words are hard to say, there's a, it's a dead giveaway. There's a need on the inside of you that needs to be fixed. If you got to be called, and we've had people come, I'm serious. You got to call them apostle, bishop, whatever. Holy Reverend, right founding father. I don't know what they ever founded, but you know what I mean? First son of the firstborn of the foremost. You know, I, I didn't, can't even get all their titles straight. You don't need to call me that. They just called Jesus the Lord. They just called him Christ. They called the greatest apostle that ever lived, Paul. If it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. You know why? Because our identity is not in titles. Our identity is in God. Stand with me. I'm really done. Come and join me if you would. I want to close the service here at the altar today. Come, come join me right now because I've only got a couple of minutes and Pastor Donnie's going to have to come right now and even finish this for me. I just simply want to pray this prayer. Don't leave because I'm asking Pastor Donnie to finish this altar appeal. But I love you in the name of Jesus. And I'm here today to tell you, get off the performance treadmill. Don't let people judge you. You have an identity in God. Understand who you are in Christ.